It is another delightful opportunity and a great privilege at that that we have this evening to come together on an occasion like this one. As we are gathered in the peacefulness and tranquility of this hour to have sung these songs together, to have prayed so lovingly and collectively to our Heavenly Father, and to also be able in freedom and liberty to open the precious Bible and to be taught and to learn those things contained therein. I would like to take just a note of personal privilege at the outset of the lesson to express on behalf of my family and me a tremendous note of appreciation to the Montrose Church for your invitation to us to be with you. We have been encouraged. We trust that you have also been able to do the same. And certainly, I can easily say that not only have we enjoyed your fellowship, your compliments, your generosity, you've also fed us so very well, and for that we are certainly thankful. You are blessed indeed with very wholesome and capable cooks here in the Montrose community. Above all of that, though, Brother Larry made mention just a moment ago as to when he and I may have met the first time. Brother Larry, I don't actually recall that either. But I do remember well, as my family does as well, those times we've been with you during vacation Bible schools and have always found this a loving and sound church. And in fact, this would be an appropriate time to wish upon you our wishes in the language of 3 John verse 2. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest be in health and prosper, even as thy soul prospereth. It's our desire that this church will flourish and grow spiritually, and perhaps also, no doubt, along with that will come numerical growth. But we know that in soundness and in truth, God indeed shall continue to be with you. To the elders here, we also wish for you the wisdom and strength to continue to lead in the way that you see the Scriptures to be leading and teaching. And we know that certainly God's mighty hand will bless greatly this congregation as her efforts continue onward. It would entirely be fair at this point to recollect just briefly some of the things we have seen throughout the course of the meeting. And in fact, on this opening slide, we will perhaps appreciate that we have looked at a subject that in fact can be a rather difficult one. We've looked at a subject that can be rather challenging. Troubling compromises facing the church has been our theme. All throughout, we have attempted to remind ourselves of some of those battles that the church in this modern era is facing. Battles that in many ways are not new. Parallel battles were fought in ancient days as well. But today the church must be mindful of these matters so that she is able always to approach it with defense of always that which is true. To that extent, on Sunday morning, we learned about relativism seeing yet again how terrible that doctrine is, and yet so many subscribe to it, that they, they think, are the ones that determine the truth, when in fact it is always what God has declared, John 17, 17. We also saw that the age of the earth is a pertinent matter. Even though there are many around the globe that will adopt a rather old age for the earth, the Scriptures will not uphold it. And in fact, loudly shouts, the earth is not nearly as old as many today think that it is. Sunday night, we looked at yet another matter, this time denominationalism, and yet saw that as often as you and I encounter this today, it is still the case that the church is not one among many. The Lord purchased but one church, Matthew 16, 18, and it is that one that He bought with His blood, Acts 20, 28. Monday night, we turned our attention to yet another interesting subject. In fact, that one and the one last night, we looked in tandem matters, not only at the matters related to, you notice, those interesting things concerning premillennialism, but we saw powerfully that, in fact, what the Bible teaches about the end of time is so very different than what these things are that many, in fact, like to believe. Tonight, as we come near the close of this series, you might have noted on the title just a moment ago, we're going to look at women's roles in the church. And as we give some thought and some reaction to that, throughout the course of the lesson, it'll again be my attempt to at least share with you some of the things that today are real battles. You and I may live in a place in which this may not seem to be a pertinent topic, but let me assure you, there are other places, and they aren't far from here, in which this is a very troublesome matter. There are churches who, in fact, are struggling on how to deal with this. 
And in that struggle, as we shall learn tonight, there have been some who have gone so far as to say this subject, women's roles in the public assemblies, is the principal theme that will be the controversial matter over the next hundred years for the church. I don't know whether that's true or not, but we can certainly say this. We need to be aware of what the Bible teaches on it so that you and I can be better assured and more confident on what the Scriptures have taught concerning these matters. It is with that in mind that I would ask you to notice that the church is perfect in her design. Human hands never touched it. Christ is its head. He is its builder. He is the one who set forth in its entirety all of its doctrine. Inasmuch as that is true, we learn in Ephesians 5.27 that He might put it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. The church, you see, is perfect in her design. But the other side to that coin is that those who comprise the church, namely you and I, are not perfect. You and I are not infinite in our knowledge, we are not infinite in our understanding and wisdom. And because you and I are not perfect, we are the ones that introduce into the church anything that causes it to be less than the way in which Christ designed it. Thus, my failures and yours, my misunderstandings or perhaps yours, may lead to problems that ultimately exist and develop within the church. It will be our burden tonight to look more interestingly and carefully at that matter at the bottom. What about the role of women in the public assemblies of the church? May I suggest to you that we begin the lesson in the following way. Let's first of all take a broad appreciation to the way in which ladies or women are presented in the Scriptures, and then we will begin to look more carefully and with some focus on those passages in the New Testament that do place those restrictions that you and I have already no doubt thought about. And with that in mind, it is rather interesting to notice that the way that the Scriptures present and pose the matter of ladies or women is so very different from what the ancient cultures of the world did. And it seems to me that's a valid point to at least consider at this early stage of our lesson tonight. In fact, you might notice, there are those in our world today who will rather storm and powerfully make the statement that the Bible is insulting to women. They will forcefully say, this book is in fact one which lowers women. But that is so far from the truth that in many ways it even need not be discussed. Think about the plight of women as they existed in ancient cultures, be it Babylon, Greece, Rome, or yea, any number of other ancient civilizations. In fact, it is interesting to notice just a few of these things at the bottom, and then we'll return and make a concluding comment about this particular slide. Isn't it amazing how many ladies, how many females had an important role in the early work of Christ's ministry? In fact, notice these. The Bible makes careful note of a number of female disciples. Now notice I did not say apostles, but female believers, if you please, for the cause of Christ. Mark 15, verse 40, Luke 24, verse 10, just to name two places. And in them we find the names of these individuals listed, like Joanna. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Salome, and even others. And isn't it amazing that they are described as being interesting helpers to the cause of that early element of the Lord's ministry. What's more, we can appreciate that Jesus took the initiative and the liberty to engage in conversations with women. And that, of course, was in a day and time when for a Jew that was not something that one did in public. In John chapter 4, the Lord entered into conversation with that Samaritan woman and Jesus instituted it. You may recall that He there sat at Jacob's well. She came to draw water and He started the conversation with her. We notice later in the book of John, in John chapter 8, there was that rather compelling scene in which a woman taken in adultery was brought to Jesus. Now, many things could be stated about that case that ultimately led Jesus to dismiss it. 
But it still is important to notice that Jesus spoke with her. He talked with her, and in fact, it was He who, after all of her accusers turned and left, it was Jesus who spoke with her and said, Where are thine accusers? And He then proceeded to say, Go and sin no more. That was two cases among others that might be listed in which Jesus had conversation with ladies. You'll notice beyond that, so many other women are listed within the pages of the New Testament. There's Jesus' close friends, Martha and Mary. In fact, it would seem that as He considered them His very close friends, He even in Luke 10, verses 38 to 42, came to that house. And it was then, you might remember, Martha was cumbered with much serving. And she sought the Lord to encourage Mary to help her. But wasn't it Jesus who said, Mary hath chosen that good thing which shall not be taken from her, May we see in all of that the Lord did not insult them. He did not rebuke them. He did not, in fact, cast them to the lowest elements of society. The Bible lifts women high, far higher than they ever were considered outside the realm, you see, of the New Testament gospel. But even beyond that, in Romans 16, in that closing chapter of the Roman letter, so many individuals are are there listed by name. Many of them were men but some of them were women. Jesus paid compliment, did He not, to Priscilla, the wife of Aquila. And not only that, in verse 1, He made a special mention of Phoebe, who apparently labored greatly for the cause of the gospel in that city of Rome. Later in the chapter, mention is made of a woman whose name is not given, but she was the mother of Rufus. And Paul even made note that she in some way had been like a mother figure to him. Even at that point, we have seen enough to notice that Paul complimented these ladies, these women in their efforts, whatever they may have been for the cause of the gospel, in purity and in its truth. Even beyond that, who could forget Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, who did so much good that in fact folks were greatly sorrowed when she passed away. And of course, Peter raised her to life. Later, we can appreciate also that grandmother and mother of Timothy, Lois and Eunice, respectively. And what a great compliment that Paul paid to them. Maybe we've looked at enough Scripture, at least in those references, to remind us there are women strewn all across the pages of the New Testament. And as we see them presented in the works that they did, it helps us see, doesn't it, that again, God encourages women to use their talents in the way that would be acceptable and pleasing to Him. And in so many instances, we have seen that mentioned by name in the course of these women. But that does bring us, of course, to the issue that is the problem tonight. Because, you see, the Bible does go beyond this. And it does place restrictions, doesn't it, upon those ways in which a woman can utilize those talents in the public assemblies. Two passages that leap off the page and come to our mind would be these. In 1 Corinthians 14, 34, as well as 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 14. In that first one, we encounter directly the following passage. Let your women keep silence at the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak as they are commanded to be in in obedience, as also saith the law. Now that language is rather direct and straightforward, isn't it? Paul there, by inspiration in writing to the congregation in Corinth, said, Let your women keep silence in the churches. It is not permitted unto them to speak. As you and I listen to a passage like that one, it is ones like it that are raising the difficulty and the controversy in many circles in the church even today. In 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and following, Paul, same writer now, but to a different congregation, makes this statement. Here he rather abruptly and powerfully said, Let the women be in subjection with all silence. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Pausing at that point following verse 12. In each of those instances, Paul, in writing, has used the words silence, not permitted to speak, 
not able or permitted to teach, not to usurp authority over the man? What was Paul saying in all of these? And to what extent must that now be considered? As you and I give thought for the remainder of the lesson this evening as to the thrust of these passages, it'll be our desire and our goal, of course, to properly interpret them, to place them in their proper placement so that we would always rightly divide the Holy Scriptures of God. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. It is in that regard. I would invite you to come to the bottom of that same page. We have just re- listened to and read those passages in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, but now directly give, give some thought to these opposite points of view. The modern culture, the modern world here in America in which you and I live, the essence is held high that there should be equality among men and women. In fact, you'll notice there are so many who think there should be no placement of restriction on what a woman can do compared to a man. There should be no placement of any kind of constraint upon the labors of a woman, either in or out of the church, compared to a man. You may recall the Equal Rights Amendment that was so pointedly set forth back in 1972. And as that was set forth, the states never in fullness ratified it, so it still is not an amendment to the Constitution. But nonetheless, what great popularity it has gained. In fact, at the very time, 35 states did ratify it, but 38 are needed to make it a constitutional amendment, and so three states were lacking, only three. Isn't it interesting to notice some of the things that even today still take place? There's great lobbying in in Washington relative to the efforts of equality between women and men. There's tremendous forces of organizations that lobby Congress in every session to the extent to ensure by constitutional right that this will be the case. Now, needless to say, all of that is without the church, outside of it. What about inside of it? What are some things that you and I perhaps should seriously entertain as we give thought to what's happening inside religious organizations? We perhaps all are well aware of what many denominations openly do. They encourage women in their public assemblies to teach classes, to lead singing, to lead prayer, to preach. There is no restriction in many cases among the denominational world as to the efforts of women in public assembly. It's a bit interesting that as you pass by a given building that's used for worship, it's not at all unusual if it's a denominational building to see the preacher's name listed And it's not unusual for it to be a woman. All of that being said, you'll notice that there are many in the religious world who openly have come to accept, to even encourage women to employ their talents, to employ their capabilities and capacities in any way they so choose, be it public assembly or not. But you and I just read earlier about these passages in 1 Timothy and in 1 Corinthians that seem to say just the opposite. Are we beginning to see the problem? The controversy that now exists to perhaps even raise that to a higher level and to raise it to a higher bar. I would like to bring you to the Church of Christ. A building that has on its name the Church of Christ and look at some of the things that are happening in so-called churches of Christ. There are now coming occasions in which women are being asked and even encouraged to be the teachers in Bible study classes in which it's mixed men and women present. Not only that, you'll notice that some have gone so far as to encourage ladies in their efforts to be pulpit preachers and even to serve as elders in one capacity or another in the church. This is happening in churches of Christ now. We are no longer discussing the so-called denominational world. As two explicit examples, I would invite you to give thought to the Troy Church of Christ in Troy, Michigan. If you do some research and look intently at what they encourage and what they in fact support and endorse, 
you'll find they endorse the very things that we have just discussed. Absolute equality in every regard in public assembly in an effort with regard to men and women leading the worship in any capacity. The Cabaja Valley Church of Christ, located in Alabama, does exactly the same thing. You'll note again the name that is placed upon these buildings. These, my friends, are churches of Christ, at least by affiliation and by name. There are others even in our locality, in Davidson County, Tennessee, who would not veer far from what you and I have just discussed. It would be my hope that as you give some thought to these, this is now seemingly rather close to home, isn't it? There's a particular website to which I would direct your attention if you have an interest in looking at this further. It is gal328.org. That's galatians328.org. This is an entire website with a rather large number of supporters, and the mission statement of it is this, gender equity in churches of Christ. The sole focus is not the denominational world, but it is you and me as churches of Christ with the encouragement that we have too long restricted what women should be able to do in worship. The whole thrust of that website is just along to what we've seen before. To allow women to engage their talents and skills in whatever way they so choose in the activities of public worship. But perhaps in saying all of that, I would now ask you to consider what will be our thrust from here onward. Our interest is not what men may think about this. Our interest is not what various and sundry conferences, scholarships, books, or lectureships may have stated concerning it. Our interest is basically to revisit those passages we looked at earlier and to rightly, fairly, honestly, and properly seek to interpret them and to see what was the will of God in His presentation of those matters. As we do that, let's begin in the following way. First of all, it would be entirely fair to say that all of these churches of Christ that we've just mentioned, and even the denominational world, they do not ignore these verses that we read earlier. They do not just tear out 1 Timothy 2 out of their Bible or 1 Corinthians 14. They, in fact, approach those verses, but they do so following one of these three approaches. First of all, there are some groups that will do this. They will state that the Bible upholds complete equality between women and men, and they will thus say that any passage that appears not to uphold that can rather conveniently simply be asserted that we don't understand fully what it is teaching. And thus, they don't give it that much consideration. That's one approach that many, in fact, seek to take. Thus, they lay great stress on passages like Galatians 3.28 that says there is neither male nor female in Christ. But they will give less emphasis and really give less interest of study to passages like 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. So that's one approach. Since you'll notice it does not give great interest to a full understanding and full appreciation of the text, we will not need to worry that much about that approach tonight. But yet another approach is, some will say, inasmuch as one finds women mentioned in many instances in both Old and New Testament and has an interesting role in the service of God, surely today God would not restrict a woman from fulfilling her capacity as a preacher or elder or otherwise. And so these kinds of people just basically ignore both 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2. Or even if they do not ignore it, they use part number 3. Very last statement on that slide. One of the most convenient things that many choose to take is that they will say those passages like again, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2, are cultural in their nature. They were addressing a specific problem at a specific place 2,000 years ago, and they don't really apply today. 
There are many. In fact, the vast majority will take that approach. Do you notice again the kinds of thinking, or at least the attempted logic, that they use to step around these passages? That last one is a particularly impressive one in some regard. They simply relegate the biblical teaching of those passages to a cultural scenario at that time and thus claim, well, it doesn't apply today. It doesn't address that situation today, for we don't have that situation. And hence, they say, all those restrictions that were placed on women do not apply today. A rather convenient set of logic, isn't it? Simply wipe away all those verses as if they have no meaning, no usefulness, no significance for us today. I would suggest that we try to do a bit better than that. We are not at liberty just to sweep passages under the rug. We are not at liberty anywhere just to conveniently choose to not give any emphasis. Every word of God is tried, Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Passages like both of them state to us that, again, we need to do a better job at looking at these passages and not just kindly ignore them, neglect them, sweep them under the rug, claim they don't apply today. We certainly must do much better than that. It will be in light of all of that that we then come to looking at what saith the Scriptures. That haunting question of Romans 4 verse 3 resoundingly sets itself before us, doesn't it? What saith the Scriptures? Our interest is not what GAL328.org has to say. Our interest principally for the determination of the will of God is not what various and sundry preachers of some sort may have said. This will be our guide. This is our passage and text. And in it, we shall find the answers to our questions tonight. It seems like the first thing to consider carefully is that very last element we mentioned a minute ago. Are these passages that we have listed cultural in their thrust? When Paul addressed the church in Corinth, was he describing a cultural problem that existed there but nowhere else? And thus were these statements about the restriction of women's roles in public assembly directed to them and to them alone in such a way that they are not meaningful for you and for me today? This is a very, very valid and good point. It is true that from time to time, in the Word of God, we find passages that do have a cultural background to them. But you and I should appreciate this fact very quickly. Any statement of Scripture that does in fact have cultural conclusions based with it, that fact must be stated in the context of the passage. Otherwise, we must not assume it. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul made reference to a woman having her head covered, we are told in verse 16 of that chapter, that was a custom. Thus, you and I need not bind that on any woman today. If a woman chooses to wear a hat, that's fine. But if she chooses not to, that's equally valid in the eyes of God. Paul says that was a custom. And so it is with regard to anything in the Scriptures. If the passages tell us it's a custom or tell us it's culturally related, then you and I can interpret it that way. But if the Bible does not indicate that it's cultural, and what's more, if it in fact expressly indicates that it's not cultural, then you and I do greatly err if we teach that it is cultural, and if we do not assert that it still is valid today. It is that very scenario that's descriptive of this passage. I would ask you to give some thought again to what we find taught in that passage in 1 Timothy 2. You'll notice a minute ago I didn't finish the quotation. Let's go back to verse 11, start the quotation again, and this time let's complete it all the way till its end, all the way to verse 14. Paul again wrote, beginning in 1 Timothy 2, verse number 11. In that passage, Paul said, 
Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now may we ask this, bluntly and forthrightly. In that passage, Paul gave a reason for why the restrictions were placed upon the woman. He had stated in verses 11 and 12 that the woman was to learn in silence with all subjection. And he went on to say, did he not, that I suffer not a woman to teach or to possess authority over the man. But now you and I could ask, why Paul? Why are you making this placement of restriction? Verse 13, For the man was first formed, then the woman. So his first reason for specifying this had nothing to do with Corinth. It had nothing to do with Ephesus. It had nothing to do with the first century at all. He says the first reason is this. Adam was formed first and then Eve. God formed the man first. And in that act of primogeniture, the man had that element which here Paul used to describe this restriction placed upon the woman. It had nothing to do with culture. This went all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Second reason, verse 14. He nextly asserted, not only was the man made first, but now we come to Eden in relative to the nature of the fall, the entrance of sin into the world. He said the man was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. As we recollect the events of Genesis chapter 3, we will remember that both Adam and Eve knew the commandment that God had given. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2 verses 16 and 17. And thus, in that statement, we nextly turn the chapter to chapter 3, and we find immediately that the subtle serpent entered into a conversation with Eve. And she told the serpent exactly what God's command was. We may not eat of it, we may not touch it. However, as the dialogue unfolded, Satan encouraged her to look again upon the nature of what was there. It was good to the eyes, it was good for food, and it also answered the desire for pride of life. She partook of it. She gave to Adam and he partook of it too. There's no doubt both of them sinned. But Paul said that the nature of their sin was different. It was not the same. He was not deceived, but she was. You'll notice that the serpent approached the woman. And it was through her and her fall, her participating in that act of sinful nature, that also she gave to Adam and he also participated. You'll notice that she was deceived by the serpent. Adam was not. He, in fact, out of his devotion and love for her, if you please, or following her instruction, was led into the sin. Based on those two things, neither of which are cultural, it was for those reasons that Paul made these placements of restriction. It has nothing to do with culture. By the way, isn't it amazing that when we find in 1 Corinthians 14, these statements were made to that city, Corinth. But in 1 Timothy, the city was Ephesus. Paul told the same thing to, do to, to, to two different cities. Isn't it amazing? then to notice how that some in our day have relegated this to culture when Paul expressly said it had nothing to do with culture. He took us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the scene of events and the order of events that happened there, and that was his basis. That was the basis of heaven for his placement of these restrictions. I would invite you to give some thought then to one conclusion that seems to naturally follow. If what is written in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says, goes all the way back to Eden, that means it is not based upon culture, and that means it is still just as binding today as it was when Paul asserted it in 1 Timothy 2. We may not simply scoop these beneath a rug and pretend they don't exist, as some in our world today are attempting to do. 
we in love and in desire to pursue that which is true will always uphold the will of God and desire to implement it fully and to lift it highly among ourselves and those whom you and I may influence. But you'll notice that we may even go a bit further than that. Having looked at the basis for this and learned that it is not cultural, might we now give some thought to that second element that some use today to in fact explain these restrictions and say that they are not useful today. You might remember that that point I made on that occasion was they look at many of the women who are found in the Bible and they say, well look, she exercised her abilities in this way or she participated in this way. Why cannot we do the same thing today? Well, let's retrace just a few of those women that often are mentioned. The first one that in many instances is mentioned is Miriam in Exodus 15, 20. We remember that as the children of Israel left Egyptian bondage and proceeded on their journey toward the Promised Land, they crossed the Red Sea having been delivered from their Egyptian pursuers. And it was on that occasion that a marvelous song of victory was sung because they were now free. It is in that light we read in verse 20 that Miriam, the very sister of Moses, was a prophetess. And thus some will say, well, there we have it. Here was a woman who prophesied amongst Israel. She's called a prophetess. As we look forward also to Judges chapters 4 and 5, we remember that the fourth judge of Israel was a woman named Deborah. And thus some will quickly say, well, there was a woman judge. And thus, she must have had a position of leadership. She must have occupied a role in which she gave directions and guidance even to men. Let's try another one. What about 2 Chronicles 34.22? On that occasion, it was King Josiah, who, as he came to recognize this book of the law having been found, he directed that, a particular source be sought so that information from God could be learned as to what Israel needed to do. The person whom they consulted was a prophetess named Huldah. Here's yet another lady named a prophetess. Let's try again. In Acts 21.9, we encounter a gentleman named Philip. He had four daughters and they all prophesied. Isn't it amazing as we give thought to all of them, and you can see them in fact listed for us. There are even others, such as Anna in Acts, in rather in Luke 2.36. She also was called a prophetess. Might we give some thought to what was taking place in regard to all of these? First of all, what is said about Miriam? It is said that she labored amongst the women. There's not a single hint that she prophesied before men. With regard to Deborah, it is stated that there were those that came to her privately for instruction, but there is no hint that she exercised that ability publicly. As we give thought to Huldah, it there says that these came to her in a private fashion, not the slightest hint that she labored in a public fashion, having authority to teach or proclaim in a public way over the men. Furthermore, we can appreciate those daughters in Acts 21. The, th the thought is presented that they prophesied. It is not told how they did so or where. It would be an assumption on our part to presume it was a public assembly. I might suggest to you one would in fact would look in vain to find in any of these an example of a lady a woman, if you please, prophesying or preaching or proclaiming in a public way over a public assembly involving men. Might we also notice, even beyond that, inasmuch as none of these provide an example of the very thing that in fact is claimed, let's revisit Galatians 3.28 for just a moment. I would suggest to you that is the principal text that is used by those who claim that there should be equity and equality among men and women. What does it say? What is its context? Does it teach what they claim it does? In that passage, Paul rather simply made this statement. 
as he was lifting high the banner of Christian liberty, the capability for all to enjoy the blessings of Christ, the goodness of the church, and the powerful marvel of the goodness of God expressed spiritually. Paul wrote, There is neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, bond nor slave. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's verses 28 and 29 of Galatians chapter 3. Now what was it that was Paul's point? Probably all of us are very familiar with the verses that just preceded that. Verses 26 and 27. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul was speaking about the glorious measure of being a child of God and what that involves and how it is accomplished. For ye, he wrote, are all children of God. How? By faith. In who? In Christ. And then he explains how that faith was accomplished, manifested and implemented. For, conjunction of explanation, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul thus asserted, you who are all the children of God, you became that way because you were immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, and by the blessing of God through His Son, you were admitted into His family. Now verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor free. That means in the church, we enjoy a powerful equality when it comes to salvation. A woman has every bit as much right to obey the gospel as does a man. She has every bit as much right to the blessings of the blood of Christ as does a man. Furthermore, you can apply it to those other lists. A slave or his master both had equal opportunity to the precious message of salvation. You'll notice furthermore he mentioned Jew and Greek. One of the principal themes we find in the New Testament is that the Gentiles had as much right to the blessings of faith in the gospel as did any Jew. That was one of the themes of the Roman letter, one of the themes of the Hebrew letter, one of the themes of the Galatian letter. Thus, when Paul wrote there's neither male nor female, he wasn't saying we can dispense with all the roles of male and female. He was stating that we all have equal opportunity to salvation through Christ. That alone is a grand blessing, isn't it? And it's one we each enjoy heartily. Might I invite you to notice as we've looked at all these examples then, it does perhaps prepare us to come to the closing set of ideas in our lesson this evening. We just cast the spotlight on Galatians 3.28. And we have learned that in context it does not endorse what so many today think that it does, these who believe that women can serve as elders or preach in a public way. May we recall in passing passages such as 1 Timothy chapter 3, when Paul gave the qualifications of an elder, one of them is this, the husband of one wife. That clearly eliminates a lady, a woman, from serving as an elder. She cannot be the husband of one wife. You'll notice furthermore that when the deacons are listed later in that chapter and the qualifications for a deacon are given, he too must be the husband of one wife. That again implies that a lady may not serve as a deacon. Those are offices in which God has reserved those activities for males, for the men who meet those qualifications. And may we be quick to say that those qualifications are demanding. But isn't all of the Christian life demanding? Aren't each of us called to lift ourselves to a high level to approach what God would have us to be? We thus learn that a lady cannot serve as an elder or a deacon according to the Word of God. But when it comes to preaching, we need to return to 1 Timothy 2 verses 11 and 12. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. Our King James translators didn't do us the greatest favor because that word usurp is not really in the Greek text. Rather, the word that's there is to possess or to have authority. 
I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to have authority over the man, to possess dominion over a man. As you and I can quickly see, that means when it comes to the activities of the church, our public assemblies, or yea, any of the other ways that that church carries out its business, God has reserved those roles for the men in terms of that element of leadership. There are many things that a woman, of course, can do much better than a man. But however, when it comes to her usage of them, in the church it is the males that are to have that element of leadership. That has directly been given to them. And if they, in weakness or ignorance or apathy, refuse to take it, they shall have to give account to God in judgment for that dear election of their duty. That has been given to them. Isn't it interesting then to notice, he said, I suffer not a woman to teach. That does not eliminate any and all teaching responsibility from a woman. Simply any teaching that's over a man. For example, when you and I sing songs, as we have already done tonight, we learn in Colossians 3.16, we are teaching each other, but that is an element of teaching through song in which a woman has been commanded to engage. But when it comes to delivering didactic discourses, when it comes to teaching authoritatively over a class session or to deliver sermons, that has not been given to the woman. And she must in fact step outside the boundaries of the command of God in order to do that. May she encourage a preacher? By all means. May she, in fact, by her efforts and capabilities, encourage the church in other ways in which she is not directly asserting authority over the man? By all means. In fact, God has commanded her to utilize her talents and skills in any way and in any sphere where she does not step beyond these boundaries that God has placed. It's certainly easy to say today the church wouldn't be what it is without the encouragement, without the work, and without the love of the Christian sisters. Every preacher that I've ever known depends greatly on his wife for encouragement. And in fact, isn't it true that an elder often resorts and relies upon her calmness, her confidence, the capability that she has because again, that is a qualification for being an elder. You must be the husband of one wife. God wouldn't have given that qualification if there wasn't a great meaning behind it. That woman that stands at His side to encourage, to love, to support, to challenge Him to move onward and forward in His work as an elder, He needs her just as she needs Him. It would perhaps be in that order that we should mention 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. As we give thought to what Paul discussed relative to women on that occasion, he said, interestingly, that the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. And then as he went further, he said in the next verse, For the man, neither is the man without the woman, but the woman, of course, is in need of the man. We do learn, of course, in passages like that one, that critical interdependency that exists. And as we've learned tonight, God wishes both men and women to use their skills in the sphere and within the boundary that God has placed. You'll notice that with regard to women, public teaching over men, expressing authority over the men in a public assembly has been withheld from her. The reasons we noticed near the close of 1 Timothy 2 hearkened all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It would be in regard to those matters that we could come to a point of conclusion in our lesson tonight. There is becoming an even greater degree of pressure upon churches to in fact mold themselves after the way society is presented. To allow anyone to do anything they want at any time they please in the way that they choose. And that includes to encourage women to fully use their abilities in whatever way they like. But we've learned tonight that God did not state that. He has in fact stated something that's opposite. And inasmuch as He has done that, as you and I respect what God has said, we cling lovingly and tenaciously to that truth. And we uphold it with all the fervor and vibrancy within us. We each 
then in our interest to use our talents in the way God has given. May we close our lesson by reminding ourselves as we have all throughout this series that we must never compromise the revelation of God. It is the eternal truth. It has been so since that marvelous day in Acts chapter 2 in this Christian era and it shall last until the end of time. Throughout the course of this series, as we've listed these compromises, let's come to this last one and close our entire series in the following way. There is no controversy from the biblical standpoint on the plan of salvation. If there would be a person in this audience tonight, a person within the sound of my voice, who is not a member of the body of Christ, a faithful member of that body, may I invite you to think urgently of this situation. Please think urgently of the circumstances in which you now are. If you were to pass from the scenes of this life tonight, where will you spend eternity? That's a question that at this point only you and God can answer. But by comparing your life with what this book says, you know where you stand. You know if you've been faithful or not. If you became a member of the body of Christ perhaps years ago, but your life has been characterized by indifference and apathy, it's been characterized by a lackluster approach to Bible study and church attendance, it's perhaps been described as one who is relatively uninterested in the things of God, you certainly realize that that's not acceptable before God. You need to make a change and you need to make it tonight. The gospel invitation is extended to you. You can come back to that first love. We'll pray with you. We'll pray for you. God has promised to forgive you if you'll repent and confess them. But might we say, if you've never become a Christian, if you have never once enter into that watery grave of baptism and had your sins washed away. Let me tell you that when you come out of that water, it's one of the best feelings you'll ever know. At that point, you're as pure and clean and white as you can imagine. The Bible likens you to being as white as snow. Don't you want to feel like that? Don't you want all the history of your life and all of its sins to be wiped from you? Now you must believe in Jesus and you must repent of your sins, and you must confess the name of Christ. But upon your doing that, you'll simply be kindly immersed into that water, and you'll come forth a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If we could help you do that tonight, we would be delighted to do so, and your eternity will be changed forever. If tonight you need to respond to the gospel invitation, why not do it tonight? Why delay? Why not come forward even now while together we stand and while we sing?